Tonight we'll be in John chapter 6 and verse 37. John chapter 6 verse 37 reads, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Let's pray together once again. Our fathers, we come now again to sit under your word, to hear it preached. Uh, We pray that you would draw near to us and that you would speak to us through your word and that it would take root in our hearts and that it would bring about change. That is the great need of every soul here, the change that only God himself can bring by his word. We pray for it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 6 and verse 37 is what might be called an epitome text. An epitome text. What's an epitome text? An epitome text is a text that packs in a great amount of truth in a short or small number of words. Uh, It is a verse that brings with it a great deal of punch, a great deal of uh, weight, a great deal of force. John 6.37 can, in some sense, stand alone by itself. It's one of these verses that you might put on a, a note card and put on your uh, mirror at home or on your fridge or to keep uh, next to your bedside. It's a, a verse that is full of wonderful truth and it's contained just in this singular verse in John 6.37. Now I must confess that I have a great deal of, of personal history with John 6 and verse 37. It has appeared to me at numbers of times in my life Uh, as one of the most wonderful texts in all of the Bible. Martin Luther once said this, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. And I have experienced very much in my life, maybe as you've experienced, with a text like John 6.37, exactly what Martin Luther is talking about. John 6.37 has it many times in my life run me down and laid hold of me, and grabbed me, and seized me, and communicated the truth of God's word to me. John 6.37 came to me in the very first days of my Christian life, and it taught me that Jesus Christ receives sinners, and that He is happy to receive all those who come to Him. Later, John 6.37 came to me in the midst of a fierce battle over assurance of salvation, and it persuaded me that Jesus will never cast out any of those who come to Him in repentance and faith. And more recently, John 6.37 came to me once again and laid hold of me as I uh, contemplated, along with many of you, the prospect of planting the church here in Winston-Salem. And I was reminded afresh in special ways from John 6.37 that behind the scenes, in an invisible way, God is doing a work of giving over sinners to the Son so that they might come to Jesus Christ and believe. And our confidence in planting a church in Winston-Salem is built on that. What hope do we have that the gospel will go forward here and that any will receive it and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that a church will be planted and grown in this community? Well, it is that God is doing a work of calling out men and women, of giving them over to His Son, Jesus Christ, so that they might, in fact, come to Him and saving faith. John 6.37 is indeed an epitome text. And I plan to preach this standalone text, this epitome text to you tonight. But first I want to remind you of the context. Before we open up verse 37, I want to, I want to remind you of the context in which this verse appears. 
In John 6, Jesus performs an amazing miracle of feeding the 5,000. And uh, then Jesus, perceiving that the crowds were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departs to a nearby mountain. And we read that the disciples get into a boat to go from Galilee to Capernaum. And Jesus, in order to meet them in a miraculous way, walks on water. Uh, John doesn't provide any more commentary about it. The other gospel writers do. But John just basically says, yeah, he had to cross the sea. And so he just walked on it and walked to the other side. And then he, he moves on from that. The crowds realize that Jesus is gone. This man who's just done this mighty deed of multiplying food and feeding them. And uh, they uh, want to make him king. They want him to multiply these sorts of miracles again. And so they pursue him and they follow him to Capernaum. And when the crowds confront Jesus and uh, ask him to sort of give a repeat performance, Jesus slowly begins to confront uh, their unbelief. He slowly begins to confront the fact that they really do not have saving faith. Jesus exhorts the crowds not to labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life that can be given to them by the Son of Man. Jesus tells them that the work of God is that they believe on the one God has sent Jesus tells them that they shouldn't be seeking signs or food, but that they should be seeking the things which the signs and the food signify, namely that Christ is the true bread from heaven. In other words, this isn't a matter of just feeding your belly. This isn't a matter of giving you material comfort. This is a matter of pointing you to Christ, who is the true bread who can truly satisfy your soul and give you all that you need. Jesus tells them, tells the crowds that he himself is the bread of life and that he who comes to Jesus shall never hunger and he who believes in Jesus shall never thirst. And then in verse 36, the whole narrative shifts. Jesus flatly exposes in this verse their unbelief. What seemed like a positive response to Jesus is in verse 36 shown to be negative. Jesus speaks of their unbelief. He says this in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. It's like there's this crescendo in the passage uh, that sort of, sort of hits its peak in verse 36. This crowd sees this sign, very positive response. They're very enthusiastic about Jesus. And little by little, Jesus tries to deconstruct their faith, showing it to be spurious, showing it to be false. And finally, you get to verse 36, and he just comes out and says it. You have seen me. You've seen this work that I've done, this sign, and you do not truly believe. And actually from 36 on, uh, little by little, what was a positive response all of a sudden deteriorates. So when you get to the point in verse 60 through 66, we read that even many of his disciples are no longer walking with him. Uh, They hear this very difficult saying from Jesus. Jesus says that if anyone wants to follow after me, they need to eat my flesh, they need to drink my blood. They say, this is a difficult saying. Who can listen to it? And they walk away from Jesus and they leave him. And though even his Immediate disciples affirm their faith in Jesus. Even one of them, Judas, was to deny Jesus. Now, I've always thought this is interesting in John 6. Here you have this very positive response to Jesus that turns out to be uh, false faith. Turns out to be spurious conversion. Turns out not really to stick. I find it odd because uh, if you read John up to this point, especially if you read John 5, Jesus is talking about this work that God has given him, and he has this authority that's given him from the Father, and the works that he does, the signs that he performs, the teaching that he gives is not his own, but it's given to him by God, and he has this work that he's supposed to do. 
Remember, John 3.16 came before John 6, where he says, God so loved the world that he gives his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This cosmological scope that the world uh, is called upon to believe on Christ. And if you knew nothing about the rest of the story, at least I would assume, uh, this is about where we're going to see this wonderful work of Jesus bringing in scores of people. Uh, Jesus is the one to whom the scriptures have borne witness. John is borne witness to him. The Father is borne witness to him. And now we get to John 6, and here these crowds have a positive response to Jesus. And you've got to think, now he's going to do it. There's going to be this mass conversion, this great revival in the land of Israel. And Jesus is going to have souls that truly believe on him. But obviously that's not what happens. Actually, the exact opposite happens. Uh, massive amounts of people come and witness Jesus. They hear his teaching. And then they leave. They conclude that, 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 no, this is not the Messiah, or this is not the one who we want to make king, and they, and they leave Jesus. Which should leave us asking if massive amounts of people could see Jesus and his wonders and hear his teaching and see his signs and his miracles and witness the authority with which he spoke and did these signs and wonders and turn away from Jesus, was Jesus' ministry not a colossal failure? Did Jesus not fail on this great errand, this great mission, this great task that God has given him? That's the question, the tension I feel when I get to John 6 and verse 37. But John 6 and verse 37, I think, comes as a response to that tension, a response to that question. And it says this, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. It's in the face of rank unbelief. It's in the face of powerful opposition. It's in the face of those who might conclude at this point that Jesus was some kind of a failure, that Jesus makes this profound statement, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. I'd like to open up this passage under three main headings. First of all, I want to introduce to you the Father who gives. The Father who gives. Secondly, the Son who receives the son who receives and thirdly and finally the savior who keeps savior who keeps the father who gives the son who receives thirdly and finally the savior who keeps first of all the father who gives if you would look again at the text all that the father gives me will come to me jesus is looking at thousands of people who he knows do not believe him and he says this to them, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What is meant by this statement? Remember Jesus is saying this right in the face of rank unbelief. The first thing to see is that the Father is doing something. Jesus' awareness, though what he sees before him is, is people who don't believe on him, don't trust him, or ask him to do things that he is unwilling to do. He's looking at these people and he immediately goes to the invisible work of the Father. He has confidence that his father is doing a work. His father is doing something behind the scenes in an invisible way that these crowds, these people, and even Jesus' disciples could not understand. He knew that his father was doing a work. That God was operating in a way that could not be perceived by the men and women, the boys and girls who were there. Well, what was it that the father was doing? We see that the father is giving. And he's giving something, and he's giving something over to the Son. And we would do well to ask, what is it that the Father gives over 
to the Son? What does the Father give to Jesus? I believe the answer is that God is giving over to the Son. God the Father gives over to God the Son the souls of men and women. He's giving men and women over to Jesus. And I think this is abundantly clear from the context, but we also see it in the verse itself. In the beginning of the verse, we don't have any indication that Jesus is referring to people or to souls. All that the Father gives could be anything. When Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, that could be power, that could be authority, that could be honor, that could be anything. But what we see in the latter part of the verse is that the, the all that the Father gives becomes the one who. The focus is narrowed. So, so all that the Father gives to me will come to me, the one who. The one who from among that all that comes to me. I will by no means cast out. So here's the idea. The Father is giving this whole group of souls over to Jesus that will inevitably come to him. And then the second half of the verse envisions when one of these souls does come to Jesus. The second half of the verse is telling us uh, when, when an individual comes to Christ from that large group, that great gathering of souls that the Father gives over to the Son. Now this is not the main point of the text, but this is what I want you to appreciate tonight. Do you ever feel... Like God only loves you or receives you as part of the all that. And here's this great and mighty company of people. Uh, this, this great church has been given over to the Son. And God loves me because I'm part of His church. Because I'm part of that big group. If I wasn't part of that group, I'd be in trouble. Listen, it is wonderfully true, powerfully true, profoundly true that God loves you as part of the all that. But He also has individual dealings with every sinner who comes to Him. The all that becomes the one who. Every individual in that group has a personal response to Jesus and a personal relationship with Jesus. And Jesus will sweetly deal with every individual who comes to him. Yes, you are wonderfully part of the all that, but you are also profoundly the one who comes to Jesus. And when you come by yourself, as you are, Jesus will receive you. And yes, wonderfully, you will be made part of that wonderful company who is given over from the Father to the Son. Well, God's work of sovereignly drawing men and women to himself is what Jesus has in view here. And what we should realize is that in the face of this opposition and this unbelief, Jesus is drawing supreme confidence from the work of his Father. What we should see is that the sovereign work of God cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. Though, though crowds leave Jesus and are opposed to Jesus and though the work looks small and unimpressive, God's work will not be stopped. We just prayed for uh, the Far East a moment ago and of great opposition that's there towards Christ's church. But the fact of the matter is if God is sovereignly working to do a work in that land, nothing will stop His plan and His church and His gospel from going forward. Jesus is uh, yielding supreme confidence from the knowledge that his Father is doing a work. So he's not uh, uh, thrown off by these people who are looking at him and are uh, not believing in him and who are walking away from him and perhaps mocking him. Some are making plans to kill him. Jesus is not thrown off by that. His confidence is soundly rooted in the work of his Father to bring about change in the lives of men and women. Don Carson, in commenting on this text, says this, However many people do not believe, God's saving purposes cannot be thought to be frustrated. 
Jesus' confidence does not rest, listen to this, Jesus' confidence does not rest in the potential for positive response amongst well-meaning people. Far from it, his confidence is in his Father to bring to pass the Father's redemptive purposes. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is frankly predestinarian. He says, Jesus is not here wringing his hands, hoping that well-meaning people will bring about a positive response to him and that they'll just uh, uh, agree with his arguments and find him just so lovable and so compelling. His confidence is something so much more inflexible than that, so much less fickle than that. His confidence is in the will of his Father to do a redemptive and sovereign work in the hearts of men and women. And listen, if that's Christ's confidence, that ought to be our confidence. That ought to be the church's confidence. The church is called to go into the world and to preach the gospel. And the confidence is not that we'll just give so compelling a presentation. uh, That the Lord will give us leaders who are so charismatic that we'll, we'll just win the day in the public sphere. No, our confidence must always be in the sovereign and powerful activity of God to bring about his purposes. May God help us never to rest our confidence in worldly methods or schemes or manipulation or the ability to be charismatic and attractive. But may we always depend upon God for Him to do a sovereign work in the lives of men and women. For those of you here who are seeking to evangelize, who are seeking to witness to lost friends, lost neighbors, lost family members, there's profound encouragement in this text for you. God has done a work already. The Father has given souls over to the Son. The power behind your evangelism, the power behind your witness, is in God giving souls over to the Son so that all those who are given to Him will be saved. This is security and sanity for tired evangelists and for tired preachers. And people who are trying to share the gospel. There's security in this text. Your confidence is, what, is in what God has done. I know that Jenna and I have been witnessing to lost family members and lost friends for years now. And you can just bang your head against the wall wondering if they're ever going to believe. Well, what hope can you have? You've given the best presentation you can give. You've shown them the love of Christ. What hope do you have that they'll be saved? Well, the only hope is that God is going to do a work. And that's no small hope. That's a wonderful hope. If God has given the soul of this man or woman over to the Son, then no matter how poor my presentation of the gospel, no matter how sloppy uh, my, my presentation of the four spiritual laws is or whatever evangelistic program I want to promote, God will do the work. It's profoundly encouraging when you consider all the things that we have against us. All the, you know, we, Jenna and I will look, we'll look up and down our street or we'll be sitting at an intersection. And I've said this to her before. How many people at this intersection do you think actually know the Lord? Surrounded by cars, you know, and, and you're thinking, what's going to persuade them? What's going what's to um, um, cause these people to, to, to leave uh, their love of self and their love of money and their love of their idols and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? If it's left up to our charisma, if it's left up to our ability to create an attractional type church that's going to impress people and, 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 and really wow everybody, 
Uh, I don't think we have much hope. I don't think the church is all that charismatic and all that attractive to people who are dead in their sins. But if your hope is in what God himself will do by his sovereign working in the heart of a man or woman, that is a great hope. Mm. And that is our hope as we give the gospel to others. The Father who gives. I see in this text something exceedingly wonderful in that the work of election, the work of God sovereignly working in a way to predestine men and women and give souls over to the Son is conveyed in a most positive light. Consider how wonderful it is that the Father gives when he did not have to give at all. Would it not have been right for God the Father, witnessing the rebellion of sinful men and women, just conclude, they're done. I'm going to condemn and consign each man in sin to hell forever. But that's not what God the Father did. He gave souls over to the Son. He didn't have to do it. There was nothing forcing his hand. God didn't have to save anybody. He didn't have to elect anybody. But the Father mercifully gave souls over to the Son. I think it's possible when one is first converted for him or her to conclude that it was largely a matter of their own initiative. I think that's possible. It happens all the time. But for the genuine Christian, I don't think it will take long before he or she realizes that something else was at work. Uh, When you look upon your conversion and your coming to Christ, as they say in the NFL, upon further review, uh, you find that there was something else going on there, right? Mm -hmm. When you reflect back on God uh, saving you, there's a whole lot more going on there than just your initiative, right? I encourage each one of you, if you can remember back to when the Lord first saved you, think upon that day. Isn't it evident to you now that God was doing something? He was sweetly and wonderfully and mysteriously wooing you and doing a work in you and and drawing you to himself. Charles Spurgeon spoke often about this. A quote from him I'd like to read from you now. He says this, Let me refresh your memories with your calling. Was there not a day the mementos of which you fondly cherish when you were called from death into life? Fly back now to the day and the hour if you can, and if not, light upon the season thereabouts when the great transaction took place in which you were made Christ forever by the voluntary surrender of yourself to him. In looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been of divine origin? How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God, came to you irresistibly, and came to you with such personal demonstration what grace was here what was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you do what he's saying there what was there in you to suggest a motive that God should save you oh beloved we can hardly ask you that question without the tear rising in our eye should not this calling of ours evoke our most intense gratitude our most earnest love Oh, if he had not called thee, where hadst thou been tonight? If God had not called you, where would you be tonight? I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be gathered with 20 other disciples of the Lord Jesus, worshiping him. Where would you be tonight if the Lord Jesus had not called you? Spurgeon says this, who am I? What should I have been if the Lord in mercy had not stopped me in my mad career? This was a kind and gracious call when we consider what we might have been. The Father did not have to give. 
But wonderfully and profoundly and graciously, he did give. He gave souls over to the Son, and he has called men and women to himself, who would not be here tonight, would not be in an assembly of God's people, but would be anywhere advancing their mad career of sin. But now, secondly, we see in our text the Son who receives. We've seen first the Father who gives, and now, secondly, the Son who receives. Please look again at our text. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will by no means cast down. There's three things I want you to see here with regard to the son who receives. First of all, the son receives sinners because he's obedient to the father. The son receives sinners because he's obedient to the father. Remember, Jesus has been given a task by his father. He has been given a mission. God the Father gives souls over to Jesus, and Jesus does something with them. Jesus delivers Jesus' receiving of sinners can be understood as an act of obedience. It is the fulfillment of a task given him by his Father. So listen to this. In order for Jesus to reject sinners who come to him, we'd have to understand him as being either disobedient to the Father or unable to carry out the work his Father has given him. Both are unthinkable. So your confidence in being received by Christ is in his ability to be obedient to his Father. Is Jesus able to do that? Is it his delight to do the will of his Father? Listen, your security in Christ is based on Jesus' desire to obey his Father. God has given this gracious mission to the Son, and Jesus enthusiastically, with joy, obeys his Father and fulfills that task and that mission and receives sinners. John 6, 38-40, if you just look on a few more verses, listen to this work that Jesus has been given from the Father. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The sinner's confidence that he or she will be received by Jesus can be grounded in the Son's inflexible commitment to do and delight in doing His Father's will. But secondly, I want you to see that the Son is the one to whom sinners must come. The Son is the one to whom sinners must come. The Father gives these souls over to Jesus. And it's not that they're to come to the Father or that they're to come to the Holy Spirit. The Father's design in salvation is that these souls will be given over to the Son and that sinners must come to the Son. They must come to Jesus. When we are calling sinners to come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're calling them to come specifically to Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom sinners must come. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through Jesus. God has designed in the order of redemption that sinners call upon the name of Jesus Christ. It's the only name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. But thirdly, Jesus always receives sinners who come to him. If, if, people, if sinners come to Jesus, his message is that he will receive them. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. He will receive all those who come to him. Some of you may so, know the song that goes like this. Jesus sinners does receive Word of surest consolation. Word all sorrow to relieve. Word of pardon, peace, salvation. Not like this can comfort give. Jesus sinners does receive. If you come to him as a sinner, 
He will receive you. As you, if you come to him as a child of God, he will receive you. That is the teaching of John 6, 37. He's not going to reject anybody who comes to him. He's not going to cast out anyone who comes to him. Nothing will keep him from receiving you if you come to the Lord Jesus. John Brown, in commenting on John six thirty seven, says this, quote, No degree of previous guilt, no former habits of sin, no secret decree of God, No involuntary mistake, no feebleness in attempting to come to him will induce him to reject a single individual who, in the faith of the truth, comes to him for salvation. I love that. He says, no feebleness in attempting to come to him. Because I feel even when I come to Jesus as a sinner, I feel so ashamed of the way I'm even coming to him sometimes. I feel so feeble in my attempts to come to Jesus. And yet even that feebleness in our attempts to come to Christ will not induce Jesus to reject the one who comes to him. And again, notice how Jesus asserts his confidence that they will come. They will come to me, and when they come to me, I will receive them. I will by no means cast them out. It's not as though if you'll just come to him, maybe he'll let you in. It's not as though if you come to him, he'll have you fill out an application, make you wait in the waiting room, and and, and wait for a decision on your case. Uh, We don't want to be left in the dark if we come to Jesus. We can have the confidence that if we come to him, he will receive us. Now, we have predominantly uh, believing people in the room tonight. So let me say this to you. Uh, Sometimes in our walks with the Lord, uh, we don't feel that we could come to Christ in the confidence that we really are children of God. I don't know about you. In the past, in, in my life, I've struggled with assurance of salvation. And there are some days when you can hardly believe you're a child of God. So listen to me, when you cannot come to God as a well-assured saint, you can always come to God as a needy sinner. No matter where you are in your life, no matter what you've done, no matter, as as John Brown says, no matter what your previous guilt, uh, no matter what sins you think you've committed that disqualify you from Christ's love, there is nothing that can disqualify you from coming to God as a sinner. When you cannot feel you can come to Him in full assurance, come to Him as a needy sinner. And you will find, as so many Christians have found, thousands and thousands of times, He will receive you when you come to Him. But now thirdly and finally and more quickly, let's consider the Savior who keeps. We've seen the Father who gives, the Son who receives, and the Savior who keeps. Now there's a weakness to my outline. If you're just going to hear that rattled off, you think I'm talking about three different people. The outline has two people in mind. First there's the Father who gives, And the second and the third are the same person. The Son who receives and the Savior who keeps. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Now the idea here in that last part of the verse, I will by no means cast out. The idea here is not that um, Jesus won't reject you, though that's true. Jesus is actually talking about once someone is brought in, how will he treat them? It's assumed he's going to receive them. But once they're in, how will he deal with them? How will he interact with them? How will he relate to them? What will become of them after he has received them? How will their souls fare after they've been given from the Father to the Son? The word of John 6, 37 is that he will by no means cast them out. Once inside, how will Jesus treat you. Now that Jesus has received you, what will he do for you? He will not cast you out. He will keep you. He will save you. He will see you through. He'll complete the work that's been done 
in you. We have this same idea a couple verses later in verse 39 through 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You don't have to turn there, but John 10, 28-29 says this, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What a wonderful image. I would play this. I have a, a, a little brother. He's, he's getting older every day, obviously. But when he was really little, I played this game with him where I would put something that he wanted in my fist, a piece of candy, a quarter, whatever, and I'd hold it out to him. Um, it is impossible for a three- or four-year-old child to pry open an adult man's hand. You play that game with a little child, they get frustrated very quickly. That's not unlike the image we have in John 10. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. The idea is that, is that God is holding on to us. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are clawing at that fist, and they can't get at those who are in the Father's hands. Nothing will strip them out of the hands of God the Father. Amen. If you're in that grip, if you are Christ, if you are His child, He's going to keep you. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Not the sin that is within, not the devil or the world who is without. If you are Christ, you are safe forever. He will keep you. He will see you through. He will save you. It's not my custom to bring up the Greek language very often in preaching. Right now, I think it's helpful. The Greek language here in this statement, uh, I will by no means cast out, goes like this. Ume ekbalo echo. Ume ekbalo echo, which means I will by no means cast out. U means no. May is another word for no. Ekbalo echo basically means to cast out, okay? So there's a double negative in this verse. No, no, will I cast out is literally how it reads, okay? Now you kids might know that in English, a double negative is something you're not supposed to do, okay? If I said, um, uh, uh, ain't nobody gonna beat the Clemson Tigers, okay? Well, if you actually broke that down, it would be like saying somebody will beat the Clemson Tigers, okay? The negative negates the negative, right? It doesn't work that way in Greek, okay? U, may, no, no is there for emphasis. The idea is, some of the translations say, I, I will certainly not cast out. By no means will I cast out. Jesus is saying, there's no way. U, may, ekbalo, echo. No way will you be cast out. It's this emphasis. It's almost like in, in protest. It's like, like banish the thought that my child could be cast out. I'd like to close by asking this question. Again, recognizing that most of the people in the room tonight know the Lord. Let me ask you this. How do you know that you will have faith tomorrow? How do you know that you'll have faith in five years? How do you know that you'll have faith in your dying day? Tomorrow's Monday morning. How do you know you'll have faith tomorrow? <coughs> hey, that's just me. I do what I do. I've been doing it for 16 years. I'll wake up tomorrow and just have faith again. That's, that's what I do, right? Listen, if that's your confidence, Satan's going to wreck you. Your confidence that you'll have faith tomorrow is not in your ability to perform. It's not in your ability to endure. 
It's not in your ability to just hang on and to keep the faith. Your confidence rests in the work of Jesus to keep you. In the work of Christ to hold on to you. In the work of the Father to make sure no one is going to snatch you out of His hand. That is what will see you through. That's where your confidence lies. It's not in your ability. It's not in the strength of your faith. It is the strength of the one in whom you have faith. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, He will hold me fast. That's your confidence. Christ will hold on to all those who come to Him in faith. How sweetly and wonderfully Christ deals with His people. The Father gives souls over to the Son when He never had to. The Son is pleased to receive all those who come to Him. And those who come to Him, He won't cast them out. That to me is one of the most attractive elements of the Gospel, of the entire Christian faith. In a world where love is so fickle, where love is so temporary, where love is contingent upon convenience and upon reciprocity, to know that in Christianity, in the Christian Gospel, there is this love that hangs on to us that holds on to us, that keeps us, and will never let us go. What a glorious gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have done the work of giving souls over to the Son. And the Son was pleased to come in human flesh and to send forth the gospel to the world. And to accomplish the work of redemption on the cross such that he would be the sort of mediator that could receive those souls that have been given over to him. And he receives every sinner who comes to him in faith. And we thank you that for every soul that comes to you, you will by no means cast them out. We thank you uh, for the confidence that all those who are called to Christ will persevere. Not by the strength of their faith, but by the inflexible will of God and by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that for weak faith tonight, for fledgling faith, uh, that you would bring grace and help and comfort, and that you would pick up our weak faith, and that you would uh, run alongside us in this race of faith and help us to endure. We pray that you would bless us, that you would be near to us, and that you would strengthen your people, and that you would help us as we seek to endure to the end. We pray for every soul here, that when their dying day comes, uh, they can breathe their last in the hope that Jesus will receive them. May you give each one of us that faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.